Todd Billings is a professor of theology at Western Theological Seminary in Michigan. Several years ago, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. At the time, he was 39 years old with two children, one years of age and three years of age. Todd looked forward to a promising career as a theologian making a difference for the kingdom of God. Shortly after that diagnosis, he and his wife could not sleep, so they went downstairs to eat breakfast. And while they sat there, they just began to weep. And as they were weeping, their one-year-old son came downstairs. He obviously was not used to seeing mommy and daddy weep, and so he began to weep as well. Todd soon realized that he needed a way to communicate his suffering to God. And the way to do so was Scripture itself, particularly through what are called laments. You say, well, what is a lament? In a lament, someone experiences great trouble, not just, say, the mundane affairs of life, but great trouble. And they turn to God and express their grief, their anger, their doubt, and their trust. Laments are the language of suffering. Laments are the biblical way to express our hurt to God. Now, laments are very common in Scripture. If you look in the book of Psalms, which is basically the Old Testament worship manual, you'll see that there are 150 different psalms, and there are psalms that are filled with praise. There are psalms that are filled with thanksgiving. But guess what the most common type of psalm is of the 150? Lament psalms. Scholars put it at around 50 to 60 of those psalms are lament psalms, depending on how you categorize them. But regardless, the vast majority compared to others, is lament psalms. For example, Psalm 13 begins, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? So there are an abundant number of these lament psalms, and 50 to 60, and, and other psalms of other categories, there's portions of lament. So they show up all over in the book of Psalms. Some of them are individual laments. Some of them are on behalf of the nation. We find laments in the book of Jeremiah. And there's even a book, an entire book, called Lamentations, which describes the aftermath of the fall of the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., now, before you think, well, that was just an Old Testament phenomenon. No, it wasn't. The New Testament quotes the book of Psalms more than any other Old Testament book. And the two most commonly quoted Psalms are Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, both of which are lament Psalms. Now, biblically speaking, this preponderance of lament Psalms makes sense. Scripture teaches that we live in a radically fallen world. Fixtures of life include sin, divorce, strife, abuse, sickness, 
financial strain, unfulfilled dreams, loneliness, infertility, death, the ongoing struggle of having unsaved friends and loved ones in our lives. So consequently, every believer, every believer will face trials, whether they are inflicted or whether they are not inflicted. So therefore, the need for laments is very real. Would you agree with that? But what's fascinating is that in American Christianity, I think probably influenced by our culture, it's kind of uncommon or odd to talk about laments. I think a big reason for that is because of American self-reliance, which in some ways is a very noble and great thing that has led to our nation's excellence in many ways. But we don't like to admit weakness, do we? When's the last time in a Bible study or a small group someone openly shared about a sin in their life or a struggle they were going through or just said, you know what, life stinks right now? We cover our hurts, but meanwhile we're broken inside. Or if we come to a point where we realize maybe we can't do it ourselves, we turn to other means such as drugs or alcohol, to deal with our suffering. Laments are also rare, I think, because they can sound unbiblical. Laments address God in seemingly irreverent tones or seem to lack faith, seeming to complain to God rather than trusting God. Well, in contrast, I'm going to argue that laments are biblical and they're beneficial. Life is full of hardships, and God gave us the language of laments so that we realize it is permissible to lament. And God gave us models of lament so that we know how to do so. And hopefully today can help us as we try to process suffering that we might be going through in our own lives. So I invite you to turn to the Old Testament book of Job as we continue our series. Certainly Job is someone who experienced great suffering, right? Just to recap a little bit where we've been with Job so far. He was a righteous man. God blessed him with great wealth. But Satan challenged God's character, accusing God of lacking goodness and justice and his governance of the world because God only blessed someone who... Uh, loves the blessings more than they love God. It, Job's devotion was based on God's blessing rather than the worth and value of God. Take away all of that, Satan said, and Job would curse God. And so God tells Satan that he may not physically harm Job, but he can do whatever else he pleases to Job. And so Satan destroys the wealth of Job in one fell swoop. You guys remember that, how these raiders were stirred to go and they stole away Job's livestock and lightning fell and destroyed the rest of his livestock. This wealthy man went from riches to rags overnight. Worst of all, Satan sends a great wind that collapses the house where Job's children are stained and they die. However, Job does not curse God. Then in the second round, Satan claims that if he is allowed to harm Job physically, he will curse God. So Satan afflicted Job with these terrible sores, yet Job still does not curse God. 
So now, after some time has passed, Job issues this powerful, even, I would say, startling lament. So, Job chapter 2, we'll read uh, before we get to Job chapter 3, the lament of Job. We're going to first read about the arrival of Job's friends. This is where we left off last week, the arrival of Job's friends. Of course, they're going to be the conversation partners that Job has for the rest of the book. And this passage at the end of chapter 2 is kind of overlooked, but it's important in understanding the overall story of Job. So everybody with me here? Job chapter 2, we'll read verses 11 to 13 about the arrival of Job's friends. Now, when Job's friends heard of all this evil they had co- that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. So Job's friends arrive, and we see just a little bit of information about them. Eliphaz was from Timon, was a very important city in Eden. Bildad was from Shua, which no one really knows where that was located. He was likely a descendant from Abraham's marriage to his second wife after Sarah died. And by the way, did you know that Bildad was the shortest person in the Bible? You know how we know that? Well, it tells you right there, Bildad the Shuhite. He it's really short. That was bad. But we'll need a little bit of humor today. We'll need a little bit. All right. Then there's Zophar. No jokes about him. Uh, he was from Namath there. Again, we don't really know where that was. But So these three friends come from different locations, and when they heard the news about Job, they come to him. And it's interesting how they made an appointment with Job. Um, I don't know how they did that, considering the lack of communication back then, but they made an appointment, which I think shows respect to Job. They waited to be invited, and when they heard the okay, they show up and they see Job, and when they do, did you notice how they don't recognize him? This is their friend. They don't even recognize him. Perhaps it was because of the sores on his body. Perhaps it was because of just the weight of the affliction on him just altered his appearance but it shows how greatly Job was suffering. But notice their response. I think it's fascinating. It says, They raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. They were genuinely sad for Job, and they sat in silence for a whole week. I mean, that's a really long time, isn't it? I think they probably talked amongst themselves, but they didn't talk to Job for a whole week. Again, that is the suffering that he was going through. And I think we should remember this because we're going to get into this long dialogue that Job has with his friends once the silence breaks and they have a lot of words one to another. But let's remember that they just sat with one another for a very long time. And I also want us to remember that these friends really did care for Job. 
I know they have a bad reputation. Things don't turn out so great at the end. And people like to joke that, hey, with friends like these, who needs enemies and so forth? But, and they, they fumble the ball along the way. But let us remember, they really did love Job. They cared for Job. And so what divided them eventually was not their love and concern for Job or personality differences. Was what, what divides them is their view of God and justice, which we'll get to next week. Okay? It was, a, it was a theology debate more than anything else. But their personal affection for Job was very high. And I think their example is something to emulate. If we could just pause for a second. You know, Romans 12, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Isn't that a great word constantly for us? There is a time to just celebrate, you know, when, when we have a great week like VBS and then laughing and games. Let's celebrate. But there's also times when people are going through very difficult times and it's just helpful to be there, to just sit there. Things started going bad when they opened their mouths, right? And that's a valuable lesson. Sometimes people are going through stuff. And our first inclination is to go there and fix all their problems, right? To tell them all the things they're doing wrong. To correct their theology when they start saying something that isn't correct. To rebuke their sin. Can I give this a challenge this morning? To grow in our compassion toward people. Just to be more compassionate to people. All around this room, people are hurting. Now, as a pastor, I probably hear more of the pain that folks go through just because of the nature of my, my role here. And one of the things that has surprised me over the years is how people suffer, and you would never know it. You would never know it by looking at them from the outward appearance. But yet you sit down and listen to their story. And then the pain comes out. And you walk away and you think, I never would have known that. Never would have guessed it. The church needs to be a place where people feel comfortable sharing their stories and loved unconditionally. And let me also encourage us not only to be a place where folks are welcome, but also to go out to them, to the people who are hurting. To go find them. You know, that's one reason why we've been promoting this disaster relief training. is so that we have some equipping and certification so that we can go to folks when they've had a fire, when they've had a flood, and we can go there and minister to them in the midst of their pain, not waiting for them to show up at a church, which many of them will never do, but to go to them and to be the hands and the feet of Jesus and to sit and listen to them first and foremost. And then when the time is right, then to go and share about the love and the hope of Christ. Amen? So now we come to chapter 3 as we transition from the prologue to the dialogue. Narrative is replaced by these poetic speeches until basically almost the end of the story, and we come to this lament of Job. And I have to admit, I thought about, you know I'm not going to go through every verse of the book of Job, and I thought about skipping over this passage, because it's a tough passage. One writer says it's the darkest chapter in the book of Job. 
But I truly believe what Paul says is true, that all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for the church. And I don't want to skip over stuff just because it challenges us or stretches us or makes us uncomfortable. But God's Word is given for us for a reason, right? And it's helpful to understand the book of Job, and it's helpful to us. So before we get to these cycles of speeches between Job and his friends, we see this huge lament that's all of chapter 3. Let me just say a couple words before we dive in. We've seen a little bit about Job's sorrow already, right? When the first tragedy hit him, we saw how he tore his robes, he shaved his head, which were signs of mourning in that culture. When the second wave hit, he was struck with the sores and he sat on an ash heap where people would burn their garbage. You know, but that's just where he was. He was just sitting in the ashes. He was so despondent and destitute. He was sorrowful, but nothing like what we're about to read. You say, well, what happened? Well, keep in mind, several months have passed, right? Several months have passed. It would have taken time for these friends to hear the news and to make the appointment and come and travel and make this journey. So several months. In fact, Job says in 7.3, I am allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned to me. So more than likely, several months, if not more, have passed. And after this initial tragedy, I think the mourning becomes even more acute for Job. As the realization of his loss settles in, and the loneliness grows. He's all alone, other than his wife. You know, there's really nothing unusual about that, is there? Sometimes when something bad hits, people kind of rise to the occasion. But it's the weeks and the months later when things get really hard, isn't it? And so this seems to be happening to Job. Shows he's a real person. But also keep in mind that Job's words that we're about to read, this is his words alone. His friends, they have not provoked him yet. They haven't said anything. This is all coming out of the heart of Job as he has been thinking and praying with him and God. And this is where he's at right now. We can't blame his friends for stirring this out of Job. This is all him. And I also want us to remember that though Job's words are challenging, remember that Job excuse me, that God never says that Job is wrong in saying what he says. At the very end of the book, God says, Job spoke of me rightly. So he affirms what Job says at the beginning and the end of the book of Job. So we shouldn't read this and just think, Job's off his rocker. Now I'm not saying that some of what he says isn't challenging, but God never condemns it. And we see this lament all through this passage, and it shows up in nine places in Job, according to one writer, where we see these laments of Job trying to process the incredible suffering that he has gone through. All right? So everybody kind of know that before we dive in? So let's read the lament. As I said, it covers the entire chapter. I'm going to read in three sections and really just offer little commentary. The passage speaks for itself. In the first section... Job curses his birth. Verses 10, excuse me, 1 to 10. It says, After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and let, that, and let the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it. 
nor let light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse curse the day, who were ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its, dark, of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none. Nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. So very powerful, candid language. Job curses the day of his birth. Now, by curse, he's declaring judgment. The language he uses here shows he is calling down judgment on the day of his birth. You'll notice five times he says, let. Let this happen to this. Let that happen to that. He wishes that he had never been born, that it had never happened. He curses the day of his birth. Notice he does not curse God, but he curses the day of his birth. That's part one of his lament. Second section, Job longs for rest. Job longs for rest. He says in verse 11, Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not hidden as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. So Job moves from wishing that he had never been born to wishing that he had died soon after his birth. And you say, so why did Job wish to be dead? Well, he wanted peace. As he says there in verse 13, for then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. Now to clarify, I do not think Job is suicidal. He has such a high and exalted and majestic view of God to rule that option out. He knows that that is not what he wants ultimately. His primary emphasis is not so much upon death, but just upon ending the suffering that he is going through, and he wants to be at rest. So I don't think we should go down that path. But I do think you want to give full allowance to Job, again, remembering what he has been going through, to just saying in an open and honest expression, I want the suffering to end. And then in the third section, Job laments his suffering. Verses 20 to 26, he says, Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than, dig for, it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God is hedged in? For my sign comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am, at, I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble 
comes. So again, Job transitions with these why questions, and he wonders why he must continue in this miserable condition. And it's interesting that in verse 23, he talks about being hedged in. Remember how back in chapter 1, how Satan complained that Job had been put in a hedge of protection so Satan was not allowed to attack him. And now Job feels that he is hedged in in a hedge of misery, if you will, that God has placed him in, and he can't seem to escape. So that's the laments of Job. Let me just close with a couple, two points of application. The first is this. We should, le- we should use laments when we suffer. We should use laments when we suffer. As I said at the beginning, we, we live in a day and age when rarely are laments spoken of. Uh, Professor Billings that I mentioned at the beginning, he's wrestled a lot with this whole notion of lament. He's, he went on to write a book about laments and advocating for the church to rediscover what God has put in his word for us to use. But he said, many Christians have told me, I've been in the church my whole life, but I've never heard that you can lament. Yes, we can lament. And we should lament. God made us and knows how we should respond to suffering. I'm not saying this is the only means of handling suffering. There are other means as we'll be seen as we go through the book of Job. But this should be a staple in the life of the believer. I believe that if we would turn to God more and his word, that we would find the relief that we're seeking. The answer to our suffering is not found in the ways that we commonly pursue. When people suffer, they turn to things, to help them alleviate the pain, and to make it through. So whether it's drugs or alcohol, pornography, food, cutting yourself, mindless entertainment, just to sort of drown our sorrows, that's what many of us do in our culture, right? That's how you respond. Checking out of these things that we're going through. I think we need to trust God more with laments and trust ourselves less with other means. So let me encourage you to take a passage like Job 3 or some of these lament psalms that you read and use them when you suffer. Perhaps when something new hits your life and your head's spinning. Or perhaps it's just an old wound that flares up. Right? There are scars that we have in our life that flare up, don't they? They might shrink But some of them never disappear, probably till the day we go to glory. Use these passages as a means of putting on a fresh bandage on that wound. To clean it up and to put a fresh bandage so that you continually have greater and greater victory over that suffering. I did that this week with Job 3, just reading it in my quiet time and praying. Yes, I got scars too. I got bandages. And taking the words of Job and putting them back to the Lord. I think that's what God would have us to do. 
In his book, Hurting with God, Professor Glenn Pemberton relates how at the end of one of his courses on the book of Psalms, he asked the students what was the most significant thing they learned. And one, one student, she wrote, Since my mother died my freshman year, and even more so after my father's death this year, it has often been a struggle for me to maintain a healthy prayer life. I did not question God or the relationship I have with him, but I wasn't honest. After the first week in this class, I began praying Psalm 13, which is a lament psalm, and finding that if I was honest with God, sometimes angry with him, then I could truly talk and pray to God more earnestly. This class has taught me how to hurt with God rather than hurt without him. That's what it's about. Before moving on, let me just bring up, I know some people might have an objection to the things that Job says in the language of lament. Some people think, well, that just doesn't sound like you have faith when you speak that way. But I would argue that the laments point in the opposite direction. Yes, there's confusion. Yes, there's frustration. But Job laments because he believes. What he's experiencing doesn't match up with what he knows so firmly about God. Indeed, I think the essence of faith is to trust God even in the midst of the discouragement, even in the midst of the doubt, and to not give up on God. And Job never renounces his, his belief in God. He never curses God, but he continues to seek God and God alone, not even his friends. He goes to God and God alone. That's faith. There's no one else that he's looking to. In his book on on suffering, Don Carson says, at no point does Job abandon faith in God. At no point does he follow his wife's advice to curse God. It is precisely because he knows God to be there and to be loving and just that he has such a hard time understanding such injustice. Job wrestles with God. He's indignant with God. He challenges God to come before and provide some answers. But all his struggles are the struggles of a believer. So Job has faith, friends. But some would say, well, they object. Okay, he has faith, but the language is kind of irreverent that he's using here or that we see in other places that he talks about toward God. And yes, Job does use very strong language, but we should speak directly to God, shouldn't we? Yes, with a sense of reverence. But I think it's more reverent to go and speak directly to God as you know, a child to the Father than you would to some distant deity whom you just regard as aloof. But to believe his promises and to trust his promises and hold him accountable to his promises. You look at the greatest prayer warriors in history and you marvel at their boldness to God. They believe God's promises and they would challenge him on his promises, not irreverently, but believing. Job believed that God ultimately controlled his circumstances and he could do something about it. So friends, I think we should be authentic with our hurts and our questions to God. He knows them all anyway, doesn't he? It's not like you're sliding something past him. I think God welcomes our honesty, regardless of how we feel, so that then he can minister to us. God is big enough to handle our laments. Second point is the suffering of Jesus. You know, in the book of Job, we're given this big picture of God, aren't we? This sovereign God who controls all things, 
Nothing happens apart from his control. Even evil, as we saw last week, that God control. He, he's never directly responsible for evil, but he allows it and he uses it for his purposes. God is in control of everything. And so when you read the book of Job, you just see this high, majestic, transcendent view of God. And you almost could get lost and, dis, and maybe discouraged and thinking, well, God's just so distant and aloof from us. But we also need to take into full counsel of Scripture. And, of course, other things that we'll see in the book of Job as things transpire where God, judges, God does meet with Job. But we also need to remember how much God sympathizes with our suffering. God's concern, and I think is most dramatically seen with the incarnation of Jesus. God leaves the throne room of heaven and enters our suffering as a man. And think about when you read the Gospels what Jesus goes through. He re he re he's rejected by the religious leadership, the very ones who should have rejoiced and celebrated his coming because they knew the scriptures best, but yet they reject him. He, he, he suffered at the result of the ignorance of the crowds who saw him most often as this sort of a miracle worker who could do things that they marveled at, but they really didn't fall, follow him and embrace him for his message. Or even his own disciples. I'm sure he suffered with his disciples because they spent all of that time with him, and yet it took so long for them to finally believe who he was and his mission and identity. The Bible says Jesus would go off and pray by himself. I often wonder if he took some of those lament psalms and just prayed and lamented over his mission and what he was seeing in his, right before his eyes. But of course, his suffering reached its apex at the cross. The night before the cross, in Mark 14, 34, Jesus spoke of what he faced. And this is what he says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. This is the anguish that Jesus was going through. And of course, he did go through and he did experience the physical anguish of death and on the cross, but the most poignant suffering was what he experienced in his body and his spirit by taking the wrath of God upon us. He quotes Psalm 22 when he was on the cross, which was a lament psalm, and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not accusing God, but like Job, he's wrestling with the pain and the questions and the things that he's enduring at that moment. He is taking it upon himself. Friends, we have a God who has suffered like you and I have suffered and then responded with lament as you and I are supposed to lament. No one can say, oh, he does not know what we go through. I love the words of the famous African-American spiritual that says, Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. One final point about Jesus and suffering. Not only did he suffer, did his suffering surpass that of Job or any person, but friends, his suffering was redemptive. He suffered for others. He died for our sins. He purchased our salvation. Let me just invite you to sit back and listen to the words of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah when he speaks about the Messiah hundreds of years before he ever showed up on the scene. This is what Jesus came to fulfill. Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 6 says, He was despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces as he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus' death, friends, was on our behalf. He suffered for us. Have you ever come to that place to embrace that reality that Jesus suffered for you, that God loves you, and that he died for you? And that there's no other way of salvation, but Jesus died so that we might receive forgiveness of sins and that we might be reconciled to God. Let me urge you today, friend, to turn from your sin, to ask God for forgiveness, and to receive this man of sorrows who came for that explicit purpose so that you and I might know this great God who enters into our sufferings and speaks the language of lament. Amen? Let us pray. Lord, we praise you this morning that you are almighty and you are loving. Lord, as we have walked through this difficult passage here today, I pray you would help each believer to grow in learning to share their burden genuinely and completely before you. Help us not to let our pride or our indifference to hinder our confessions, Lord, of anger, discouragement, doubt. Lord, that we would turn away from things that we might turn to in our lives, but instead turn to the Word of God as you meet us there and teach us how to verbalize our suffering through these laments. Lord, all of us have struggles. I pray that, Lord, we would voice them biblically. I know Jesus is our suffering Savior, man of sorrows. We cannot fathom what you endured on the cross. And you did on our behalf. Pray for those who know you that we would have a fresh realization of that today. Powerful reminder of your love for us. That the cross would never grow old or stale. Lord, I pray that we would be able to communicate these things to you in a way that honor you. Lord, if there's someone here today that has never received this great Savior, that, Lord, you would open their hearts and minds. Maybe they're struggling with, why are they going through these things? Why is there so much pain? Why is there so much heartache in their lives? Help them to see the man of sorrows who came for them that if they would humble themselves and turn to you, they could find the forgiveness of sins and a great shepherd who will walk with them all through their lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.